This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with David Quammen, author of the nonfiction book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. If I hadn't read Absalom, Absalom and studied the structure in William Faulkner's novels, I couldn't write a book like The Tangled Tree or The Song of the Dodo. I don't write in Faulkner's literary style. I don't want to. I shouldn't. But I was enormously influenced by the way he structures his novels, and it helped me to create complicated but, I hope, satisfying and unexpected structures in my own books. We'll hear more from David Quammen in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. I've heard that it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch before becoming members. So I invite you to beat the odds. If this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. You will receive your own link to an ad-free, pitch-free first draft feed that you can play wherever you listen to podcasts. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft family. Every month you get a newsletter and at random extra thank you gifts from me. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. I have an archive of more than 230 episodes, and I hope that from them you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft Reminder. Membership matters. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. And I also have a website now. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on other episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is David Quammen. He is a fiction writer and nonfiction writer and editor. He has written eight books about the natural world and science and three novels and one book of short stories. He is a contributing writer for National Geographic and also has written for Harper's Outside and Rolling Stone, among others. His primary focus is on science books, and he has written about Ebola, Charles Darwin, and man-eating predators, among other topics. His latest book, long listed for the National Book Award, is called The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. In the work, Quammen looks at elements of evolution that are not investigated in Darwin's theory and highlights a group of scientists who looked at DNA, RNA, and horizontal gene transfer, or the movement of genes across species lines, and how that movement contributed to human evolution. 
Throughout the Tangled Tree, Quammen introduces the reader to scientists who push the boundaries of molecular studies of evolution to come up with a more comprehensive theory of how human genetic composition came to be. We began the discussion with David Quammen, sharing how he moved from fiction to science writing. Well, I published my first novel, Young, when I was right out of college, and I thought, oh, great, now I get to move to Montana and be a novelist. And I moved to, I was half right, I moved to Montana, and then I discovered how hard it is to get your second book published, in some cases, and to make a living as a fiction writer. Uh, I did publish three more books of fiction, but in the course of doing that, I also drifted sideways into nonfiction, discovered that I was really more interested in really good artful nonfiction. And by artful, I don't mean making anything up. I just mean shaping things in an artful way. And uh, and maybe I was better at it in the world. Maybe needed me more. I, you know, I was a uh, I was a middle class white male from a happy childhood in Ohio. The world did not need me to be a novelist, but I found I could uh, have a lot of fun and learn things that fascinated me and make a living writing nonfiction about science. Can you talk about, for you, the impetus of this book, The Tangled Tree? And I can say that when I, I saw it on a bookshelf in a store, and I was like, I wonder what that's about. And I read the back. I thought, hmm, the premise of this book that was that in some way Darwin wasn't completely right. It's not that he was wrong. He might not have had all the information. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about what attracted you to this topic and how you got into it. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm very interested in Darwin. I've written quite a bit about Darwin and about evolutionary biology, but in particular about what Darwin actually wrote himself and who he was and how he did his work. I'm fascinated by this wonderful character who was Charles Darwin. Um, And I've written a lot about, as I said, about evolution. Um, It was 2013. I was casting around for my next book project. I had just finished a book titled Spillover, which is about emerging diseases, particularly dangerous viruses that emerge from non-human animals and become problems, epidemics, pandemics, outbreaks in humans like Ebola like some other things people haven't heard of, like SARS, like HIV. And I'd finished that book, was sort of shopping, looking for a new book topic. And in the spring of 2013, I happened to read something about a phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer. And I said, wait, what? Horizontal gene transfer. And yes, this these pieces that I read told me, yes, there is this phenomenon whereby genes move sideways, horizontally, from one species to another. They can even move from one kingdom to another, as opposed to being passed down vertically from parents to offspring. And I knew enough evolutionary biology that I thought I knew why that was impossible. And yet here I was reading that it happened. Now, what exactly that entails is is sort of a more complicated question, but that's what put me on to this topic. So I started reading about horizontal gene transfer, and I discovered two people. I discovered a fellow named Ford Doolittle, who had written a lot about horizontal gene transfer. He was a microbiologist, molecular biologist, an American living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I read some of his papers. Those fascinated me. And then I also came across the name of a scientist, Carl Woese, W-O-E-S-E. 
at the University of Illinois in Urbana, Illinois. He was dead by this time, just had died. And he had done a lot of very elementary, important probing work on the early history of life, the roots and the trunk of the tree of life, in the sense that the tree of life is our metaphor for the history of life, coming from single origin, diverging, branching, branching, branching. So I, I read a book that described in, in very academic but accurate ways his significance, his work. It was a wonderful book called The New Foundations of Evolution by a science historian named Jan Sapp. And at that point, I decided I want to write a book for the general public about this stuff. I want to write a book about the redrawn tree of life that has grown up in the minds of scientists who work in this area since the groundbreaking work of Carl Woese in the 1970s and as illuminated by this other fellow, Ford Doolittle, and others more recently. When you talk about horizontal gene transfer and how I tried to explain it when people were asking me, what are you reading? And this was my answer and see if that fits and you can elaborate, which is that basically when Darwin was setting out to talk about evolution, he, he had some pieces missing. The science wasn't as advanced, but that we partly evolved due to bites that we got from mosquitoes and viruses they gave to us or something in our gut that changed and mutated. And so that part of how we evolved came from these other means or a sickness. That's roughly accurate. At least it's a good start. Um, One term that was invented to describe um, one form of this horizontal gene transfer was infective heredity. And as you know from reading it, one of the sections of my book, one of the long sort of chapters, is titled Infective Heredity. Um, And that uh, reflects the fact that one form of horizontal gene transfer and involves viruses infecting people and bringing in DNA. In some cases, it's the virus's own DNA. In some cases, it's a a little stretch of DNA that the virus has picked up from another kind of organism. And if that virus gets into people, uh, it can infect their cells and drop that DNA. If it infects their germline cells, which are the egg cells and the sperm cells and the ovary cells and the testes cells, the stem cells that create eggs and sperm, then dropping new DNA in those cells can result in an insertion into the human genome. And so that's part of it. Yes, it's not the only form of horizontal gene transfer, but it's a very important form that involves humans. For instance, as I say near the end of the book, 8% of the human genome, yours, mine, and everybody else's we know, is viral DNA that has been inserted from viral infections by retroviruses over the course of the evolution of animals, rather than having come down vertically from our deepest animal ancestors. It has been inserted horizontally, sideways, by viral infection of the stem cells that make our eggs and sperm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And that is just the beginning. So one of the the main things that was at the center of all this was archaea? 
Yes, archaea is the way they generally pronounce it. Archaea, as in archaeology or archaic, it suggests old. But the archaea are a group of organisms that were unknown to exist on planet Earth. This is an entire kingdom of organisms. Um, in fact, it's one of the three, one of the three kingdoms of life on Earth, one of the three great limbs on the tree of life, and it was unknown to exist, period, before 1977. Can we say what so, the other two kingdoms are, just in case people oh, don't know? Sure. Yeah, the other two kingdoms are bacteria, which is a kingdom of life, and then uh, the kingdom is called the eukaryota, eukaryotes, E-U-K-A-R-Y-O-T-A, and that's everything else. That's animals, plants, fungi, and microbial creatures composed of complex cells that have cell nuclei. So it's we used to think it was just bacteria and everything else, complex creatures with complex cells. And woes proved, no, there's something else. There's a third major limb, bacteria, complex creatures, and the archaea. These things are single-celled creatures. People looked at them through microscopes and saw, thought, okay, that's another kind of bacteria. They're single cell, they have no cell nucleus, they're relatively simple like bacteria, so we're gonna call them bacteria. 200 years, they had thought these things were bacteria. And then my character, this Carl Woese, came along and decided he wanted to explore the deepest history of life on Earth, going back two billion years or two and a half billion years. So he invented an early, very primitive, laborious form of genome sequencing. And he started sequencing the um, portions of the genome of different organisms. And he looked at these organisms, these things that had been thought to be bacteria. And he found that not only were their genomes drastically different from any kind of bacteria, but their genomes were more similar to ours, to animals, to plants, to complex creatures, um, to humans, these things, the archaea. And so he wrote a paper in 1977, published it, and it slowly caused a revolution in thinking about the early history of life, the tree of life. Uh, and he established that these things, the archaea, are the third kingdom of life on Earth. Yeah, and when he published that, that was kind of the beginning of thinking that there was more to evolutionary biology than Darwin realized. And you also could realize, okay, they didn't find this until 1977. He doesn't, he didn't have all the information. And so it made me think a lot about the role of technology in the advancement of, of what we know about ourselves in the place in the world, in the world, because it took certain technologies to even be able to see this. That's right. It took technologies and it took other discoveries, but Darwin, Darwin didn't even have a concept of the gene. He had, a, he had a, a sort of a foggy theory of heredity. Darwin, as great as he was, um, tried to come up with a theory of heredity, how um, heritable information is passed down, essentially why sons and daughters look like fathers and mothers and look somewhat like grandfathers and grandmothers. And he failed to come up with a good theory of heredity. Meanwhile, there was a monk in Eastern Europe named Gregor Mendel who was doing experiments crossbreeding peas in his garden. He came up with what we now know as the, the modern theory of heredity. Um, Darwin's was, was wrong and Mendel's was essentially right. But Darwin didn't know about it. 
they were contemporaries, but Darwin never knew about this theory of heredity that this monk in, Aust in Czechoslovakia had uh, had come up with. So Darwin didn't have that, didn't have a theory of heredity. Darwin didn't pay much attention to microbes. He didn't um, he didn't pay much attention to bacteria. He was looking at essentially animals and plants. And animals and plants are just very different from microbes. And one of the ways in which they're different is that horizontal gene transfer is very common in microbes. It exists, it occurs in um, in complex creatures, animals, plants, us, fungi, um, but it's not nearly as common. So it's not surprising that Darwin missed it. It's not surprising that Darwin missed the archaea because he certainly wasn't doing genome sequencing. And nobody was through the 1960s, late 60s. Then uh, there was a wonderful fellow named Fred Sanger who started to do early sequencing in England. And then, and then Carl Woese, picked up some of his methods and um, adapted them and started doing his um, genome sequencing in Illinois in the 1970s. I'm wondering if you could read this paragraph just that starts with by one estimate, because when I read this, it just blew my mind to think about what you said here. And, and to me, it kind of summarized the implications of how deep we need to look and how much maybe we didn't know when Darwin was around. Okay. And I think what I'm doing in this section, if I recall correctly, is I'm, I'm, I'm saying a lot of things about, about bacteria. It's a whole section devoted to um, describing the diversity of bacteria, the importance of the bacteria, the, the abundance uh, of bacteria on planet earth. And that's leading up toward, um, me describing Woese's discovery that these microbes that he's looking at, he, as he says, son of a gun, these things aren't even bacteria. So this is all in the in the section devoted to the wonders of bacteria. By one estimate, the total mass of bacteria exceeds the total mass of all plants and animals on Earth. They have been around in one form or another for at least three and a half billion years, strongly affecting the biochemical conditions in which most other living creatures have evolved. That we don't see bacteria is simply because our eyes are not calibrated to the appropriate scale. There may be more than a billion bacterial cells in an average ounce of soil and five million in a teaspoon of fresh water, but we can't hear their crackle or their fizz. A single kind of marine bacteria known as Prochlorococcus marinus may be the most abundant creature on Earth. One source places its standing population at three octillion individuals, a number that looks like this. Three with um, three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21, 24, with, uh, three with 27 zeros after it. That's what three octillion individuals of Prochlorococcus marinus looks like on the page. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I heard about that. I was at a science meeting somewhere with some of these people, Ford Doolittle and others, and um, a woman, I can't remember her name right now, did a talk on this organism, Prochlorococcus marinus. I feel like the, the centerpiece of your story was really Carl Woese, and he was... Mm -hmm. He seemed a little bit persnickety, a little bit cranky in his later life. And and he was also bold. I mean, in, in 1977, I believe, 
he was on the cover of the New York Times when he discovered this archaea, and that changed a lot. So he was a pioneer. Do you want to talk a little bit more about him? Yes, he is the central character. Um, I've I've said occasionally that he was my Citizen Kane. Um, you know, people who have seen, ever seen the movie Citizen Kane will understand. There's a there's a, a journalist who goes out to try and learn about this famous and infamous character Kane, um, and he talks to everybody who knew him. Kane is already dead, and he's trying to figure out what's the truth of this guy. But if people haven't seen the movie, I mean, I don't know if people still still see Citizen Kane. It's a great movie, but maybe it's only um, people over 40 and or or people under 40 who are film studies majors who know anything about Citizen Kane. Anyway, he's my central character. He was dead before I started um, my research. So I went to his graduate students and his postdocs and his colleagues and other people, his friends and I asked him, what, what was the deal? What kind of a fellow was he and what was he doing? And I assembled this portrait of not just um, his work, what he discovered and how he discovered it, but to a certain degree, who he was. Um, he was a man who was very private, very complicated, very curmudgeonly, cranky, uh, um, persnickety, as you said. Um, he was a professor of microbiology at the University of Illinois, but uh, he had no use whatsoever for undergraduates. Um, he was a terrible lecturer. He didn't like to travel. He refused to serve on university committees. Um, he was hard to get to know, but if he happened to become your friend, then he was a great friend. He could be funny. Uh, he had one friend who was an entomologist in working in the same building, big bear of a guy named Charlie Vosbrink, another of my characters. And uh, Charlie Vosbrink was not doing, um, uh, I think he would agree, profound work on the early origins of life. Uh, he was learning how to deal with uh, insects that are pests on crops and forests. But he and Woes hit it off. So they would drink beer together on a Friday afternoon and get all beered up and then go see Cheech and Chong movies and have barbecues in the backyard. Charlie was a big guy. He told me at one point they were both drunk and he decided Carl Woes was being too pompous. So he was going to pick it. He picked him up. He was going to throw him in his, his bushes and Woes was str struggling and squirming around saying, wait, no, don't throw me in. Don't throw me in my bushes. Throw me in the neighbor's bushes. Uh, don't ruin my nice hedge. I'm saying, I'm hearing the story from Charlie Bros Vosbrink and I'm, I'm saying, you were gonna throw the great Carl Woes into the bushes? Yeah, because he knew this different side, this human side of this great profound scientist who would drink beer with him on a Friday afternoon. Um, so there's, there's more of that. I try and scratch away the layers of Carl Woes and get toward the core and understand this complex and, and curmudgeonly character um, better as the, as the book goes on. So it's his story. I say sometimes that um, this is a book about the most important biologist of the 20th century that you've never heard of. And that's this Carl Woese. I found this as a reader about how important these relationships between scientists are to get advancement. If, if they're willing to work together, if they're willing to read the research by someone, maybe even across the world. I mean, 
Carl Woese was someone who did team up with various people in various concentrations over the course of his career. Mm-hmm. And we think about science as being very maybe non-personal, but what d- did you come away with thinking about in terms of the, the, the human element and the relationships between scientists to make advancements? Science is personal. Science is human. There's a great book, A History of Science, by a fellow named David Ho, and it's called Science as a Process. Big, long, thick case study of a particular branch of biology. But the bottom line of this very serious book, Science as a Process, is that science is is a, a human activity done by people with um, with egos and flaws and ambitions and friends and enemies. And uh, you really don't understand the process of science unless you understand that. But it's great for us. It's great for people who want to learn about science because there's so much story there. There's so much character there. There's so much human flavor. Um, and that's what I try and do always when I write a book is is bring in the, the human stories. I mean, when I got interested in horizontal gene transfer uh, back in early 2013, I was fascinated by it as a biological phenomenon that was so bizarre, so counterintuitive, so important, and yet I had never heard about it. So I wanted to write a book about it, but I knew I couldn't just write a book about the ideas and the facts, um, the journal papers that involved horizontal gene transfer. I knew that I needed human characters, and when I found Carl Woese, I knew that he was going to be the central character. What does it mean to be wrong in science? I mean, in 1977, Carl Woese was basically saying there was something wrong about Darwin's theory. Yes. Yeah. One of the curious things about Woese that I came across as I got talking to more and more of his closer friends is that at the end of his life, he was very bitter about a couple of things. I think he was bitter that he hadn't won a Nobel Prize. He was bitter that for the discovery of the archaea. Uh, he was bitter that his work was not more widely recognized, and he was not more widely recognized than uh, than he was. He had had a good career, but not a not a hugely eminent career, and yet he was, as I would argue, and, and others. Uh, the most important biologist of the 20th century that most people have never heard of. Um, he was also bitter toward Darwin. He got um, he got the idea that Darwin had stolen the theory of evolution from a man named Alfred Russell Wallace, who co-discovered the idea of evolution by natural selection. I wrote about that story at great length in my earlier book back in 1996, The Song of the Dodo. So I had researched that long before I think Carl Woese heard about this story. I was looking into that carefully, and I'm convinced that um, Darwin um, was a very honorable man, and they did discover this theory simultaneously, uh, and uh, and they co-published it in in an obscure journal, and then Darwin wrote a book called The Origin of Species, and everybody said, well, he's the father of evolutionary biology, and they forgot about Wallace for most of a century. But that's not to say that Darwin stole this idea. He did not. But Woese came to believe that he did. So he was bitter toward Darwin. He was bitter for his lack of recognition. Uh, He was getting ill. He was bitter toward molecular biology because he thought that 
this great field had become merely an engineering science. And what he meant by that was that molecular biology had all of the money had flowed toward uh, essentially biotech and medical research in molecular biology. And people were, were working to discover ways to make humans more healthy and to be able to do whiz-bang forms of genetic engineering. And Woes felt that this science should be about um, deep understanding of the history of life, answering the sort of questions that he had been asking. So he was bitter about all of those things near the end of his life and uh, a little difficult, it seems, to get along with, unless you were one of his good friends, in which case he was the sweetest man in the world. So if you had to summarize basically the impact he had um, in terms of he, his discovery and where we sit now with evolutionary biology, what would you say in your, in, so towards the end, you, you kind of broke it down to species, individual and tree, but I'm not sure if that's how you would characterize that. Well, yes. I mean, he, he was very important for a couple of things. First of all, he discovered the archaea, the third of three kingdoms of life on earth. Now that's a huge accomplishment. Uh, uh, that's like you know discovering an entire new continent on planet earth that hadn't been known of. It's, it's really more than that, it's more significant. So that was a big discovery. Arguably more important than that was uh, the fact that he led the way in saying, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use DNA and RNA uh, as it occurs in all organisms and the sequences of letters in those different molecules of DNA and RNA. And I'm going to sequence them and I'm going to compare the sequence from one kind of creature with another kind of creature. And that is going to show me the shape of the tree of life. It's going to show me way the great uh, lineages uh, of life on earth are related to one another, have diverged from one another. What is how closely related to what else? Uh, he's the one who got the idea of using gene sequence information to understand the entire history of life on Earth. That's hugely important. And the people who followed him then have used his methodology and his style of asking questions. And this is what you were alluding to. I talk about this at the end of the book. They have used that to, um, to challenge three ideas that were considered categorical truths. The idea of the species, the species as a categorically discrete unit, the idea of an individual, like an individual human, as a categorically discrete unit, and the idea of the tree of life, the, the idea that the history of life is shaped like a tree. And the discoveries pioneered by Carl Woese and made by the people who followed his lead have shown that each of those three categoricals is not, in fact, categorically true. Species are not absolutely discrete because genes move sideways from one species to another by way of horizontal gene transfer. The boundaries of what a species is are very blurry. Individuals, we've learned that we humans and all other quote unquote individual organisms, animals particularly, that we're composites. We've got a microbiome consisting of thousands of kinds of bacteria living in our stomach, living on our skins, but even our genomes, even our DNA is composite, patched together, 
by way of vertical inheritance from ancestors and sideways inheritance by way of horizontal gene transfer from all kinds of different creatures. So we quote unquote individual humans are actually composites. Thirdly, we've learned that the tree of life is not shaped like a tree. It's tangled with branches moving sideways into one another as well as diverging ever upward. So, um, so that's the legacy of Carl Woese. We now learn that species, individual and tree are not as true as we thought they were. Have you seen the science that you were talking about in the Tangle Tree and the advances made trickle down to being in curriculums in schools? Or, or are people just still learning evolutionary biology from the Darwin point of view? No, some of this has gotten into textbooks. I mean, I don't teach biology and I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at textbooks, but I, I have seen some of this getting into textbooks and I have heard from, from people who have trained in, in evolutionary biology and in um, molecular and microbiology uh, in more recent decades since Carl Woese that, for instance, his three kingdoms of life, uh, his three kingdoms tree of life, and the discovery of the archaea are in textbooks. That is the conventional story now in textbooks. He has won that battle, uh, controversial as it was at, at the time. Uh, horizontal gene transfer, that's a little bit newer, but if you are if you're studying molecular biology in this day and age, then yes, you will certainly be hearing about this. If you're studying introductory biology in high school or as a freshman in college, uh, you're probably not going to hear about any of this. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Uh, yes. I mentioned that I started as a fiction writer. When I was uh, in, uh, in college, uh, I became deeply influenced by and obsessed with William Faulkner, the novels of William Faulkner. I read the first one in 1967, when I was a sophomore in college, book titled The Sound and the Fury. And from the first three or four pages into that book, I was hooked on Faulkner. I read everything he wrote. I did a lot of my work as an undergraduate and then all of my graduate work on William Faulkner. He wrote these very uh, structurally and stylistically complex books about very um, memorable, passionate people. So he was telling human stories, but he had techniques of presenting his stories and structures that were experimental and complex and intricate. The language was very rich. The structures were, um, were like uh, Swiss watches or, or elaborate mousetraps. And uh, his greatest book is one called Absalom, Absalom which I probably read 11 times just while I was doing my undergraduate and graduate work and occasionally go back to since. If I hadn't read Absalom, Absalom and studied the structure in William Faulkner's novels, I couldn't write a book like The Tangled Tree or The Song of the Dodo. I don't write in Faulkner's literary style. I don't want to. I shouldn't. But I was enormously influenced by the way he structures his novels, and it helped me to create complicated, but um, I hope satisfying and unexpected structures in my own books. So this is page one of his great book, Absalom, Absalom, 
It's the first paragraph, the long first paragraph of that book. It's about a young man in Mississippi in the early, in about 1910, who has been called to a house to listen to a crotchety old woman who is kind of a character in the town who wants to tell him her story. And he is sort of befuddled by that. And this is the beginning of the book. From a little after two o'clock until almost sundown of the long, still, hot, weary, dead September afternoon, they sat in what Miss Coldfield still called the office because her father had called it that, a dim, hot, airless room with the blinds all closed and fastened for 43 summers because when she was a girl, someone had believed that light and moving air carried heat and that dark was always cooler and which, as the sun shone fuller and fuller on that side of the house, became latticed with yellow slashes full of dust motes, which Quentin, that's the young man, which Quentin thought of as being flecks of the dead old dried paint itself blown inward from the scaling blinds as wind might have blown them, period. That's the first sentence. There was a wisteria vine blooming for the second time that summer on a wooden trellis before one window into which sparrows came now and then in random gusts, making a dry, vivid, dusty sound before going away. And opposite Quentin, Miss Coldfield, that's the old lady, Miss Coldfield, in the eternal black which she had worn for 43 years now, whether for sister, father, or not husband, none knew, Miss Coldfield sitting so bolt upright in the straight hard chair that was so tall for her that her legs hung straight and rigid as if she had iron shin bones and ankles clear of the floor with that air of impotent and static rage like children's feet and talking in that grim, haggard, amazed voice she was talking to him until at last listening would renege and hearing sense self-confound and the long-dead object of her impotent yet indomitable frustration would appear, the fellow that didn't marry her, this notorious character, as though by outraged recapitulation evoked, quiet, inattentive, and harmless out of the biding and dreamy and victorious dust. That's the first paragraph. Do you want to say anything else about it? All I'll say is, listeners, if you think that sounds crazy and impenetrable, um, trust me, it is setting a tone and a mood and a flavor to these characters in Faulkner's thick, thick purple prose that is vastly rewarded by this amazing book that is, as I say, like a like a very, very elaborate mousetrap or a switch swiss watch and uh, is uh, arguably the i think the greatest novel of the 20th century i think i've done about 270 of these author interviews i think you're the first one to read faulkner <laughs> oh well <laughs> <laughs> and i hope i'm not the last but i may be that too can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft Let's do the first two paragraphs of the book that we've been talking about, The Tangled Tree. It didn't change a lot in this series of drafts, but it was tricky and hard because beginnings are so important. Beginnings are just so crucial. And uh, when you're going to write a book that 
is going to be 450, 500 pages long. Um, you know that, um, notwithstanding that first paragraph of Faulkner that I just read, you know that you have to tell the readers in the first paragraph something about what the book is going to be about, what you as a writer are going to be like, why they should keep reading, why they should turn the page, why they should read the book. Um, so you're giving signals to the reader, uh, not just about the content of the, of the book, but about the kind of journey, the kind of experience that you're asking them to share with you. Okay, so, uh, so I take great care with um, the opening paragraph of a book. And I want it to be something that's more than clearing my throat, something that's, uh, I don't like um, um, people talking about, well, here's why I wrote, wrote this book. And in, in the first part of a book, I like people to get right, I like a writer to get right into it. So that's what I try and do. Uh, there's one long paragraph and then there, it's followed by a one sentence paragraph. And I'll read both of those. Life in the universe, as far as we know, and no matter how vividly we may imagine otherwise, is a peculiar phenomenon confined to planet Earth. There's plenty of speculation and probabilistic noodling, but zero evidence to the contrary. That is, life might exist elsewhere than planet Earth. The mathematical odds and chemical circumstances do seem to suggest that life should exist elsewhere. But the reality of such alternate life, if any, is so far unavailable for inspection. It's a guess, whereas earthly life is fact. Some astounding discovery of extraterrestrial beings announced tomorrow or next year or long after your time and mine may disprove this impression of Earth's uniqueness. For now, though, it's what we have. Life is a story that has unfolded here only on a relatively small sphere of rock in an inconspicuous corner of one middling galaxy. It's a story that, to the best of our knowledge, has occurred just once. And then followed by a one sentence paragraph. The shape of this story in its broad outlines, as well as its finer details, is therefore a matter of some interest. And when I wrote that last sentence, I, of course, I meant that to be a howlingly humorous understatement. I realize it's dry, um, but I hope that some people break a smile when I say the shape of the story of life on Earth is therefore a matter of some interest. Where do you write? I have a lovely office in our home. Um, the home I share with my wife, Betsy, and a bunch of animals in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, I've got this lovely office. So the walls are lined with books. I've got a long desk with a computer on it. Uh, and I've got a big um, aquarium tank with a ball python named Boots in it who shares the room with me. So I write in there. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, when I finish a day of uh, of work, a day of writing, I, I, I generally crave exercise. I used to go out and um, if it was winter, I would run in the snow, in the dark in Bozeman, Montana. Um, I'm overdue for double knee surgery, so I'm not running right now, but I go uh, telemark skiing, I go cross-country skiing, 
Uh, I go for a long uh, road bike ride, and I go off to uh, to forests and jungles and swamps for National Geographic and other magazines to do uh, to do research and follow biologists around. I'm not writing when I do that, but I'm, um, so I'm escaping writing, but I'm, I'm I am working when I do that. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Generally, I show it to my editor. I don't ask Betsy, my wife, to read things before I send them to my editor. Um, she's working hard on her own work, and I don't, I don't want to be needy. Uh, I'm a fairly confident writer. I don't mean that in any sort of self-congratulatory sense. I just mean that um, I can put words down on a page um, hour after hour and day after day, and um, and then I know that um, I've got to rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Once I've rewritten six or eight or ten or twenty times, then I'm ready to show it to the editor who has paid for the book or who has assigned the magazine article. That's the first person who, who sees the work. How have you dealt with rejection? I dealt with it by tending bar for years uh, and continuing to write uh, and knowing that if I wasn't going to be a writer, then uh, there was really nothing else that I considered it important for me to do. I published my first book when I was young. I think I said some of this before. I published my first novel straight out of college, and then I paid my dues between my first book and my second book, rather than the usual way, which is to pay your dues before your first book. So um, I had published a book. I moved to Montana, and then I uh, I was out of print. I wasn't making a living as a writer. I was try. I was writing more novels, but I was not managing to sell them, get them published. And I worked as a waiter for a while. I couldn't stand that. I worked as a bartender. That was a little bit better. I worked as a fishing guide, uh, and I kept writing um, stubbornly, and uh, and kept writing and kept writing, and just knew that okay, it's going to be this or nothing, and uh, and that's comforting because I know that I have to do this. If I succeed, great. If I don't succeed, well, at least I've got the pages of these books piled up on my desk and I can be satisfied with what I've done, even if nobody ever sees them. And what is your favorite word? It depends on the need of the day. It depends on the page. It depends on the situation. But I have to admit, I knew you were going to ask this question. I do like the word transmogrify. Transmogrify is a very Faulkner word. He uses it in a lot of that purple prose that I was talking about. Transmogrify means to transform in a surprising or mysterious or horrifying manner, um, an astonishing transformation. And it's a very Faulkner kind of concept and, um, and a nice word, transmogrify. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome, Mitzi. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was David Quammen, author of the nonfiction book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Alan Lightman, theoretical physicist and writer at MIT and author of The Accidental Universe. We discuss the push and pull he feels between arts and science and the existence of God and how that fits into physics. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can follow First Draft Writers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up on the next few episodes are interviews with Walter Mosley, Adrian Brodeur, and Jeannie Venasco. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.